0: We're back, to Neil Haley Show, in the Total Celebrity segment. And I am excited to welcome the program. Such a huge fan of his, Patton Oswalt, from AP, NBC's AP Bio. Patton, thanks for calling, man. And I'm going to tell you one of the shows, I'm one of my favorite shows that you were on was King of Queens. Just wanted to tell you that. And just a huge fan of that show and always will be. And you were awesome, man, in that for sure. Wow. Oh, thanks, man. Thank
1: you.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it, Patton? When you talk about uh, spe- specifically shows that'll live on forever, isn't that true?
1: Wow, I I from your mouth to God's ears. I hope so. That'll be. I have no problem with that.
0: Yeah, because it's constantly getting uh, You end up always getting those. Uh, end up with the uh, residual checks, right? If it keeps running on uh, syndication forever, you know that's the great thing about it, right? Uh.
1: I'm not I'm not quite in the residual check level on that show but it is uh it's nice to still um
0: just pop up on TV, I guess. I got I so, you. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. All right, cool. Again, we're talking to Patton Oswalt. And uh, NBC's AP Bio, the reason why I love it is I'm a former teacher, Patton. And when you talk about oh, specifically my. What, a what school. What grade did you teach? Oh, I have some great stories. I started out in high school, um, taught, I was in special education, right. then went to elementary school, taught middle school social studies. I taught uh, middle school um, math. And then I taught the sciences when I was in elementary, so I remember all these stories. And I, and I have a tutoring and consulting company, so I work with kids all ages. So what always a, a show when it's about a school, I love it, and I wish there were more of them for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, middle school can be pretty fraught because they're not little kids anymore, but they haven't hit puberty yet. So they're in this weird twilight zone, and it's, it's the first time that kids are starting to break off into little cliques and groups. And so you get the the mean girls and the bullies and the wallflowers and the, you know so and and they're kind of realizing and learning what that is and that can be very oh um, man I'm so sorry you had to wade through that.
0: Oh, yeah middle schools a challenge I was at a Catholic school too and the first year they really they 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 taught me a lesson man they're smart kids and man and I was thinking hey I'll be their yeah. friend and 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 that's the thing that teachers have to kind of develop when they get their first teaching job like when I was in special education I really didn't have a classroom I get a classroom of 20, 25 kids and they're like haha fresh meat especially a male teacher which we don't see tons of them patent yeah. anymore and that's too bad that they are like okay yeah, let's that's true, especially in the elementary Elementary schools and and even middle schools. And more high school, you start seeing male teachers, but still predominantly women uh, profession in a lot of ways. You know?
1: Wow. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, that is true. That exactly. Is true. There's not a lot of male. Yeah. Teachers. Not as many there used to be. That's for sure.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So this show, when you got the script and you said, "Wow, you like it," right? I'm sure you remember. You remember. You remember high school once you see this, right? Patton, when you look well, at the, it. Well, yeah, it was. It yeah. was
1: two things. It was it was definitely the high school aspect of it and what they were capturing. And I, it was also the, the the fact the writer, Mike O'Brien, has been one of the more he, – he, he's uh, on the outer orbits of weirdness at SNL uh, for years. So to see him – to see that mind try to tackle what what is kind of a standard sitcom trope and then see where he would take it, both of those things combined were a big, big yes for me. And, and you know, the show is, is amazing because it's his – It's his experience growing up in Toledo through his mind. So it's pretty amazing.
0: And when you think about AP, you think about the craziness, Patton. You think about, you know, these teachers are held to a higher standard in so many ways because if these kids don't perform and get college credit, it's on them. And they also are... Well,
1: well, also, you know, AP students, they're way more, in a lot of ways, they're way more motivated and have much better mapped out goals than the teacher him or herself. So there's that challenge. It's almost like you're auditioning in front of your class every day to keep proving that you're going to be their teacher and why you should be their teacher. And that can be really nerve wracking.
0: That's a great point. Think about it. You're right because these kids are more brilliant than the teacher. They're going to go on to unbelievably successful jobs. They might be going on to Harvard, Yale, possibly another big time school or full ride. And that teacher sitting there, is, is like I got to prove myself. I'm as smart as you. Why did I decide to just teach AP Bio? Why am I not uh, uh, changing exactly. the world? You know what I mean. So I understand exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I can't wait to check it out for sure. And tell us about your character, Patton.
1: Well, I play the principal of the school, who basically I am a I am an authority figure with zero authority, and I've sort of uh, am. I wouldn't say I've completely embraced where I am because I still kick against, uh, the box that I'm in, but you know, he is that classic, um, uh, y- you know, the, the guy who is running things that no one's quite listening to.
0: Yeah. I, I know those, uh, th- that's for sure. And, uh, I'm sure you did some studying up of principles, right. And thinking about the principles you had as a, as a, as a student, right. When you took this job.
1: Yeah. Well, also just some, uh, some other depictions of principals. I and mean, one of, one of my favorites is in the movie uh, Mean Girls. Tim Meadows is the principal oh, in that yeah. school and he's so fantastic as a guy with zero authority. So I was trying to keep his performance in mind, but then do my own thing with it. But he, he is the Tim Meadows is the master at playing people in authority who actually have no authority. He's so amazing at that, so you know. I just, I really love doing that. Oh, and then Stephen Tobolowsky.
0: Oh, yeah, he's awesome. I've interviewed him. He's a, he's fantastic. has to fight
1: for his own status against his mom. So, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how did you look at those characters? And uh, what about Ferris Bueller? You think about a principal, Ferris Bueller's principal. What that one, especially. Yeah, but
1: if, but if you look at, if you look back at, uh, at Ferris Bueller, it, it gets a little sinister, Um, you know, why is he so obsessed with this kid? Uh, it gets a little weird. I didn't really quite take it that far because I don't think this guy, this guy doesn't hate any of the students. He wants, he's excited to have a great learning environment for them. He just is very, very clumsy as to how he goes about it.
0: Absolutely, Patton. And so the mixture, so what would you say your character is this principal, like his background in a little bit for people who have not tuned in yet to watch the show?
1: Uh, I'm not really going to say, I'm going to let people watch the show and, and discover it. Cause there's some cool, um, cool revelations down the, down the road in, in upcoming episodes. I'm just going to let that just, just watch and you'll see it develop.
0: All right, again we're talking to Patton Oswalt of NBC's AP Bio on the Neil Haley show and uh Patton what what was your like fondest experience in school? Do you have like a favorite experience Patton that you had in school cuz we're we're talking education I love this today. Uh what what experience would you say in school that you really remember? Well, a teacher or uh, an experience. Yeah.
1: I had a really really I remember I had a really amazing shop teacher of all People. He he was teaching us, um, you know, how to you know fix an engine and and uh, work with wood. But then he was also this weird, had this weird kind of backwoods philosophy about life, uh, and it would come out at odd times. So it was just that that juxtaposition of kind of a, a redneck dude teaching us about engines, but then also getting into um, you know kind of deeper life hacks was a kind of a startling thing. Uh, when I was in the '80s in Virginia, so that that was that's that's always been my favorite part of high school.
0: Uh, I, and I, I have some favorite memories. You, can you believe I became a teacher, but I couldn't stand school? That's the other story. How many teachers huh. have we interviewed would say, and I became a teacher because my wife is a teacher, and uh, I said, I, okay, I'll become a teacher. I'll get my summers off, and I found out how much work it is and how many other jobs you have to pick up, and you're like, well, okay, then maybe I was not thinking the right thing uh, in, in teaching. But I love to teach, but I miss the classroom. Like, But again, yeah. it's such a challenge. They well, have the hardest job. They really do.
1: A lot of people become teachers. You know, I, I hate the expression those who can, can, and those who can't teach. That's so dismissive because there are a lot of people that the reason that they become teachers is because they are truly obsessed with the subject that they are teaching and they've mastered it. And the only way to go further with it, um, the only way to get newer insights into, let's say, a period of literature that you love or a type of physics or, or a level of mathematics that really, really speaks to you is to introduce it to younger, less experienced minds and keep getting, you, you, you get to spend a life getting fresh takes and new angles on this thing you love, and that is something that I think is overlooked. A lot of people truly enjoy teaching because of what they get back from it. I don't want to use the cheesy expression, oh, the kids teach me more than I teach them. It's not that. It's that, that this subject informs their life, and they want to look at every Possible angle. I've had, you know, literature professors that that they love James Joyce, and the only way for them to get deeper into Ulysses or The Dubliners is to have younger, less experienced people take a run at it and see what they think. It's just this constant um, uh, downloading of new information that that that's why they do it. It really is exciting to get into the classroom every day, even on days I would say, even on days when. The students don't respond because that's yes. just as informative for them of why didn't this thing capture their imaginations? Why does this one concept um, hit hit them and not sink in? That also, you know, it, in it, that is just as fascinating for them. So, you know, that that's a big aspect of teaching that I don't think people look at enough.
0: That's a great point. And because, guess what, and that's what I learned as a teacher, that I want to learn new things every day. I want to go and learn a new yeah. way in social media. We could take education in everything we do in our lives, Patton, and, but if you get a chance to teach, you'll say, holy cow, if I can learn to teach yeah. something, I'll know it 100 times more than if I would just read it in a book and not yeah. apply it. That's the key point.
1: I want to I have my assumptions about this thing that I, I think that I've mastered get shaken up all the time. And not every student in the class is going to – respond and get changed. It's the four or five that really do spark, that make you go back and look at this thing that really matters to you. And also, I remember talking to, um, there's an English teacher that I know back in Virginia, and what she loves is to see how certain writers don't age well and what that says about how our society is changing and how people are being raised differently, which is like certain writers that were, you know, part of the Part of the American canon when I was young are now they just do not reach people, and other writers who, you know, maybe weren't as uh, big on on the um, in the pantheon are suddenly sparking with this new generation, and that is. Just as fascinating.
0: It is definitely okay, Patton. Again, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, when I heard that your wife passed, and I, my condolences still to this day. I feel, uh, but this has got to be a so real experience to know her book's out. So tell us about that. Give yeah. a little bit quick uh, information on that.
1: Well, you know, it, it's a book called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," and it's available now. It's it, it's a book about a the worst uncaught serial killer in California history. That no one knows about for, for some reason, and she really, really reopened this cold case and got the, the FBI to start looking at it again. So not only was she writing about the crimes and how it affected, you know, it, it took it took place over decades, the 70s and 80s. She also was looking at her own obsessions and why am I so drawn to this? Why am I trying to figure this out? And you know, how can this actually be solved using social media? Using uh, digitized information on the internet. How has the world changed? How has it opened more windows around this monster? And maybe we can put some light on him.
0: All right, and everyone needs to check out AP Bio um, on March 1st. Uh, find information on you, Patton, as well. Um, new episodes March 1st. Uh, where can we find information on you and follow you? Where can we go?
1: Uh, you can go to Twitter at PattonOswalt.com. You can go to my uh, Facebook page, my webpage, PattonOswalt.com. Um uh, I mean, you know, I'm I'm easy to find. I'm gregarious. I'm out there.
0: Well, you're fabulous, man. I loved having talking education with you, Patton, and, and uh, hope to chat with you again. Thanks for coming Thanks, on the show. Appreciate it, man.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Take care. Thanks. All right. Okay. Bye bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show on the author's corner segment. And, you know, I love people who are going to educate me. And it's, I guess, it, this is no longer the education talk show. It's the Neil Haley show and we do entertainment to different things. But I learned something from every guest. So I'm excited to welcome the program. Melba Patilio Beals, author of March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to the Little Rock Nine. Melba, thanks for calling. And you are... A pretty much a historic icon in certain ways, right? I wouldn't say icon, but really have an am- amazing story, don't you, Melba?
2: I had an interesting background, let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, de- definitely. Let's kind of jump jumped into why you wanted to write this book. Because, uh, again, you know... March you, Forward you, you know. Uh,
2: is written because I wanted people to understand what it feels like to the person who's oppressed at any time before any reason. I grew up, I'm six. I grew up age 1 to 14 under the um, Jim Crow laws of the South. Oh my I'm an African-American, a black person. And so uh, rather than to preach to somebody about this is wrong, don't do it, I thought, what if you understood thoroughly what it means when anybody is made to feel unequal? And so Marge Ford Girl tells you the experiences I had as I tried to tell myself, uh, no, you're not all those ugly names. No, you should have these opportunities. Why can't you drink? How do you explain to a three-year-old, for example, why she can't drink out of the water fountain, and why is it marked colored? And you know, why can't you ride on the merry-go-round? Was the biggest one. Why can't you go swimming? Right. Um, why do people? Why do people jump in front of you at the grocery store? Why are we waiting so long here? Why do people call you the N-word? And right. why do, mm-hmm. did my parents have to? bow and step off the sidewalk into the mud if a white person was walking toward them? Why did my uncle get fired from his job? Because he looked at a white woman in the eye. Why did Emmett Till get killed? Because he looked a white woman in the eye. And so all those things were happening when I was a child. And I wanted to know, excuse me, why? What's wrong with me? Is Brown wrong? Am I wrong? Don't I have a right to live? What do you mean God loves me? Then why am I treated this way? By the time I was three years of age, you know, I wasn't happy because I watched my parents kowtow. By the time I was four, I said, where did I come from? They said, the stork delivered you. I said, cool. <laughs> I took my wagon, my little red wagon that we get, metal wagon, out to the front. And I sat in it all day in the sun. And my mother said, you know, what's, what's the matter? Why are you there? And I said, because I'm waiting on the stork. They'll come to visit, you know, the stork will fly overhead to to deliver someone else. And when he does, I'm going to flag him down and fly out with him. That's how early I wanted out of there. By five years of age, I saw a man hanged on the ceiling of my church. So I was not a happy childhood. And the one thing I wanted was just treat me fairly. As I told grandmother, let's let the white folks be in charge from Jan to June. We'll take over July to December. I mean, if God really does love us equally, why do we have to live this way? Because I never understood it from the beginning. Right. So this book chronicles to you what it was like to grow up in a, an arena, in an area where you just are unwelcome.
0: And when you talk about the Jim Crow laws and you talk about specifically enough how uh, the, everything was treated in the South— Uh, it's just really a a terrible situation. History goes back in so many ways, Melba, to again, when the civil war ended that, uh, we didn't take care of things the right way once, uh, the South lost. Uh, and that it really just marched. It just continued to become worse and worse and gave African-Americans no opportunities in the South for so many years because of the simple fact of, um, they were not willing tool to, uh, to uh, change things. So it ha- you Well, it's
2: the color of the skin and the the assessment, you know. If may I look at you and make a judgment about who you are. You stink, you have no brain, you're inoperable see. And so those are the kinds of judgments that were made about African Americans who were first enslaved and then treated so terribly, so separate but equal, was established in the eighteen hundreds by these laws that separated people from sitting on the train at the same place separated schools separated water drinking separated everything and it wasn't that black people wanted to gather and be your friend and marry you that's not what we wanted we wanted to have an equal job can we live in where we want to live can i go shopping in the grocery store and leave you know when i gather my bag of goodies please let me pay for them and get out don't make me stand back And you get in line
0: in front of me. Yeah. And that's so true. And how did it make you, it sounds like when you told me how it made you feel, you just didn't understand why, because you're looking at your faith, you're looking at, well, everyone should be treated equal. What's happening from a little girl all the way growing up saying, this is just not right. And it's
2: not right. And you know, I really, really felt terrifically bad. Like what's wrong with me was my big question. And you and you ask yourself that all the time. But I want to make something really clear, which is people assume, because I had that childhood, I went to Central High School, the you know, I needed the 101st Airborne to guard me. That's how bad it was. There were all these, uh, you know, rampaging mobs and people killing African Americans and all this ugliness that I have some feeling against white people. You also need to know that I have two sets of parents. White set and black set. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it, in, in 1958, it was a white family that rescued me. The Ku Klux Klan that rode every night and killed families and hung them on the line and did all sorts of interesting things in the backyard. Um, well, those people were chasing us because we had gone to Central High School for a year. So they said, okay, give us the Little Rock Nine. We were nine black children among 1,900 white children. So they said, give us, one of those children, 10,000 dead, 5,000 alive. Well, that would be encouraging, kiddo, because in 1958, $10,000 would buy you what? A house, a car, whatever you wanted. And so I had to leave there. And when we had to leave, the NAACP put out uh, ads saying, who will take these children? And in my case, it was a white family out of Northern California, Dr. and Mrs. George McKay. Those people are still my family. With their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I now have holidays. We visit each other, we stay with each other, and we are loving each other.
0: That's that's so important. Melba, let's kind of take us back to this whole incident, because we don't have so much time to jump into the— we could talk about the entire book, but what this meant, this this March again— the Little Rock Nine. How did you guys come up with this idea? Why were you so fed up and you wanted to make this change? Kind of take well, of us. Of course, yeah. it
2: wasn't us. We were kids, you know, we were yeah. 14 and 15 years of age. But the NAACP and Justice Thurgood Marshall, he would later on become a justice, had been working on this for some 50 years. They've been working on these things. Law for law for law. And so, of course, this was pushed forward by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which was this organization that worked legally to show that separate is not equal. So in 1954, the Supreme Court said, hey, you're right. Separate isn't necessarily equal, and you're going to have to obliterate that. And they commanded southern cities like Little Rock immediately begin to integrate their schools. So that all students would have equal opportunity. And so that is the way then the city of Little Rock, the school board, and the NAACP originally had 116 African-American, you know, black children to go. But then they dropped out, and that 116 quickly fell to nine.
0: And why did you stay?
2: Why did I go?
0: Yeah, and then it went to drop to because nine.
2: Because I wanted Equal opportunity. I wanted a good education. It was going to be my ticket out of Little Rock. Yes. I never, ever forgot how I was treated there and how awful I felt inside. You know, I had this statement in my first book. uh, I have a book called Warriors Don't Cry. And it's, you know, day for day, notch for notch, that incident inside (laughs) that school. And it says... Black folks are not born knowing they're second-class citizens. Nobody bends over your crib and says, hey, you know what, Melba, you are nothing. You're not going to retreat very well. Instead, your self-esteem is usurped day by day, teaspoon by teaspoon. And it is very hurtful. And that's why we wanted to go, because we wanted that school. That school ranked 10th in the nation in education.
0: Melba, why did you value education so much? Was it instilled by your family?
2: Everybody is, uh, you know, Martin Luther King. My mother was an English professor with a great IQ. She spoke six languages. We knew, everybody knows, and we knew in 1941, 44, 46, and 50 that education is the key to survival. No, isn't it? If you're educated, number one, you know how to treat people, but number two, you are qualified for the job. If you're educated, your soul has been polished to the extent that you know how to treat people and you you behave in a different way. But more importantly, you get a better job, and that was the goal. Just get the best education you can, and you will get a good job, and you will live in California, New York, wherever, someplace above the Mason-Dixon line, someplace where at least you have a chance to have a, a fair life. And that's what I wanted, and that's why all nine of us went to that school, is we wanted to live better. We did not like standing in line at the grocery store. We did not like riding in the back of the bus. We did not like being maids in the hotels. That's what my grandmother was. She was a maid in a hotel and a maid in White Lady's Kitchen all of her life. So I wouldn't go, go there. Uh uh-uh. No, 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 no. I wanted a life, and I've had that life, and I'm so blessed professor for a number of years, doctorate degrees in right. international multicultural education, uh, a span of time on NBC radio, a, t- a span of time as an NBC news um, reporter.
0: Oh wow. I have lived yeah. the
2: life I wanted.
0: It, it definitely sounds like you have lived the life you wanted and education got you where you are today. And that's...
2: Education and the belief that love is the answer. I want everybody to know that violence is never the answer this kind of dilemma love is just the answer that's the only way you get through these kinds of conflicts is by understanding that your colleague is your equal no matter who it is you don't got to marry him, date him, hang with him, feed them disrespect them
0: yes and that's that's a great point so melville take us in that nine again so you were one in nine once you found out that Many of them dropped out, and you said, I'm going to still protest. I'm still going to be part of this march. How did you—did you know it was going to be so historic when it happened? Did you know that by— I
2: knew nothing. I was 15. I wanted uh, Johnny Mathis, (laughs) Pat Boone. I wanted crinoline slips. I liked music and dolls. I was nothing. I hoped to get to go to the prom. All I wanted was to be loved and respected. And so, of course not. You know, my gr- I was strictly raised in church. Three nights a week, Saturday and Sunday, you betcha. And so my grandmother would use the word decorum in, in public. That means stand up straight, shut your mouth up, and, and behave in a certain way. Of course I didn't think that white people would spit on me. I didn't think they'd carry ropes with them and try to hang me. I didn't think they'd shoot through my front window. I didn't think that when I went to Central High that first day, there would be a mob of angry people there waiting to spit on me, waiting to hang me. I didn't think that. Nor did I think a civilized African or white white person would kill a child rather than sit beside him in school. I mean, what am I going to do sitting beside you, right? So, of course, everybody says, you're a heroine. Well, don't stop. Stop. Don't even believe that when we went to that school, that was the behavior We expect it. And, of course, I need to make it clear that behavior was not exemplified by everybody, but a great enough portion of those people to really frighten us to death. And so that's the issue. The issue is that we were frightened, and and the president of the United States was frightened enough to send the 101st, which is the sharpest uh, ever group of soldiers that have been fighting a real war. And what happened was a war emerged in Little Rock, Arkansas. There was pandemonium on the streets down there. These guys were called the Screaming Eagles, and their record for service was incredible. Read about them. They're just incredible to read about. And so it was those guys that came to Little Rock, armed and ready, that escorted us inside that school. Unbelievable that we need soldiers to go in school. But with the recent shooting in Florida, I'm beginning to
0: believe we need them again. Oh, absolutely. And so, instead of arming teachers, come on now, Melba, that's the craziest thing in the world. I mean, when I, but I talked about this on my radio show, I have an education talk show as well, four months ago, and then it comes out, as President Trump says it, and then there you go. But you're right, we need to have certain protection in our schools, like armed security. And,
2: yeah, and there is some fear behind the harming of teachers because um, you know how, we, psychological testing would have to go on. Yes,
0: that's number one. And then, and honestly, and kids can, and, and we and can, we all snap. We all snap at times, and to have a. See, I've
2: been a professor. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and teachers are underpaid at best. Exactly. I don't
2: want to have a gun in my no, purse no. while I'm trying to figure out my math test.
0: That's a great point. No. Okay, we're talking to Melba Patilio Veals, and we're talking about her book. And I really look at specifically enough Melba. After this happened, when did you finally know that this is historic and that you're going to be in the talked about forever, based on the nine? Meaning, I don't know how many how um, many books. I in... was
2: forty years of age because you know in the beginning I realized this was what was interesting to me. When I was sixteen, I was taken to the north. Uh, We were taken on tour of the White House and uh, Dodd-Homishill and the U.N. and all of these places in New York that I didn't know existed. We stayed in a Statler hit hotel. Now, imagine, uh, you know, comparing that hotel room and all of its amenities to the way I lived in Little Rock in a shack uh, that was very small, probably 800 square feet at best. Uh, You know, imagine that comparison, first of all. But I never, ever thought of myself as anything but somebody who wanted a good education. And it took a while. When I went to the North and there were white people in a a room or in an auditorium, hundreds of them, as well as the black people, waiting to have me sign autographs, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder now, down in the South, they call me what and treat me how, but up here they want me to sign their autographs. And they hugged me. That's weird, you know. And so it was a weird transition. It wasn't like it was an easy transition. And then I went to live with my white parents when I was 16, actually 17, to finish school. And that was a weird transition. Because I thought, white people take naps. They have fun. They don't worry about the Klan. first night I went to live with my white family, I was up closing all the shades. And my mom said, uh, dear, uh, why are you closing the shades? And I said, you know, because the Klan rides. And she said, no, honey, not here. Nobody rides here. Oh, wow. And I couldn't figure out why these white people are golfing, uh, picnicking. Uh, nobody's worried about who's going to come and beat them up. Uh, in the beginning, one neighbor came and threw rocks, and my dad went outside. He got a bucket of rocks, he threw them back. That was. And he just yeah. was very, when they wouldn't let me swim in the Santa Rosa pool. He got his teacher friends, and they all came to the pool and marched. And so my life in Santa Rosa, California, and in California in general, has been one of freedom. And I just couldn't understand white people at all. I thought they were lovely. I mean, I didn't have any animosity, but I thought, geez, they're weird. They sure do picnic a lot. They go to the movies. They pop popcorn and watch TV. I mean, this life is so easy compared to uh, pulling the shades, worrying about the plan, uh, talking all the time about what white people are hanging, black people. This is a different life. Yeah. I thought, hmm, I like this one better.
0: Wow. And I think you definitely uh, march forward in your life, Melba, the success of your life, bringing love, and always having a mission in so many ways. And when you told me your age... You sound much younger, Melba. So I think you're going to be around for much longer and hopefully speaking out against the atrocities that we're seeing as another civil rights movement's about to start. Really scary. As I talked about when I was off air with you, that that's what's happening. We are now divided in certain ways. More and more people are not understanding race, understanding differences in people. And we need another one uh, warrior like yourself. And activists that can finally stop this hatred.
2: Hatred is never, never, ever the answer to anything. You know, we have real things that are going on that we need to worry about. One's the weather. Two is, despite any rebuttal, global warming. If you don't see it, you're blind these days. Raising enough food, feeding the world. We, we have a lot of other things. That if we gather, you know, there may be a, a man at the end of my block who has a green nose, five ears, 22 legs, and he may be, look really strange. But that's the guy that may be able to tell me how to raise veggies in my backyard. And so I'm just saying, don't ever refute somebody based solely on how they look. Because in the end, you don't know what knowledge they're carrying with them. We do not know what knowledge people who look differently than we do are carrying. We're not saying get married to them. Don't have them to dinner if you don't want to. But I'm just saying, treat them as though they were human beings. Don't reject anybody based on the way they look, because each of us is invested with special knowledge. You never know. I mean, when you're calling that black person a name or that Arab or whatever, a name, and rejects them because of their head wrap, how they're dressed. I mean, I go to companies to conduct seminars. I love it when they say, well, you know, uh, those people down the hall, they, they do lunch, and it smells so awful. Well, you know, I got to do for you. Go in, have a seat, take a bite. You may like it. You know, and, and, and whatever people do that appears to you to be strange, observe. I mean, don't join them. Observe them, you know, and you might learn something. I've learned some strange things from uh, people who I wouldn't necessarily uh, have to dinner, but I need the knowledge that they have. Absolutely. So that's all I'm asking. I'm asking everybody to look at what it is you're doing. Why are you doing it? What's your purpose? And then, like grandmother said, you know, we are all created by the same maker, really. Different descriptions of that maker. I'm not trying to proselytize, but... <sighs> Yes. In the end, aren't we all on the same pathway? Don't we really all want the same things? Absolutely. In the end, we all want the same thing. So why not allow that to happen down the block? I didn't say move in with them now. Everybody says, oh, people said when we were young, do you want to go to Central High School because you want to marry those people? No, thank you. (laughs) You know, I said to people, at 15, Grandma wouldn't let me date. My mother, who had absolute perfect memory and was a teacher herself, there was no dating at 15. They said when I got to be 18, with escorts, I could date.
0: Oh, my. Yes. Yes. So uh... I
2: was raised in the church. So, no, I'm not going to Central High School in order to date you. No, thank you. I probably at that age, you know, children were different then. I didn't really know totally what dating meant. Yeah. All I wanted to know was, if you're a boy, could you dance? That was my point.
0: Ah, uh, okay, Melbourne. Yeah. All right, perfect. So, best place we can purchase your book and learn more about you, Melba. Where can we go?
2: They're all over the place. I have a website. They're in Amazon. We were, we were ranking on the top of Amazon's list.
0: Congrats! And, yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah. Enjoy. All right, well thanks, Enjoy. For, well, thanks for calling, Melba. It was a uh, treasure to talk to you. Really enjoyed the conversation, and you're really an inspiration to many, many people. So best of luck with the book, and continue to be that activist that needs to speak out against the atrocities that are happening in our country today. So thanks again for calling.
2: Have a blessed day, you too. everybody.
0: You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show in the Total Celebrity segment, and I remember this guest and... uh Everyone definitely remembers her, but also remembers her husband, and so I always have a a great chat, so I'm excited to welcome the program, Pamela Guest, of the first of many. Pamela, how are you, and how's Nicholas doing? Uh, I remember having that conversation. What's going on with him right now, Pamela?
3: Well, he's doing a lot of voiceover work, and he also is in the middle of an arc on uh, Madam Secretary playing the Russian President. So he just did an episode, I think it aired
0: last month and hopefully there'll be more. Oh wow, okay. All right. So Pamela, and so Pamela, this is something yes. that's really making you really excited about the short film that you that you directed, wrote, did almost everything for. This is about your story. So you must be so yes. excited about the film festivals coming up and all that so that they can view this, see uh, what they think of it, and especially how the feedback has been so far. So tell us the story of why you wanted to write, direct, do almost everything for the first of many.
3: Well, um, it, it's a, it's based on something that happened to me when I was 21. And, um, I mean, shall we get into what it's yeah. about? Name? Yes,
0: yes, without giving away everything. Okay. Yes, absolutely.
3: All right. So... Um, for a while, we had not been revealing what actually happens in the movie, but we might as well now. So um, I went to my first audition in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I was still a student at the university, and um, I thought it was a, an audition for a film, and um, a very uh, unfortunate thing happened, and I was raped at by oh the director, who um, with whom I was left alone, my woman you know, ushered me into this condominium where the audition was taking place, and I had gotten word of it through on the the um, bulletin board in the theater department, so I thought it was a legitimate, you know, endeavor. And anyway, she ushered me in. She left me alone with the director, and um, anyway, so I decided... Years and years later, I never dealt with it in therapy. I told my two best friends and my boyfriend at the time what had happened. I was very traumatized and full of shame and thought it it was my fault that somehow I should have known to get out of there, which I didn't. And um, anyway, in 2013, just by sheer uh, magic of the universe, I found out who the guy was because his daughter was in my very small acting group.
0: Are you kidding me? And at me? one oh point I it.
3: No, I'm not. It was like such a gift that I found out who he was, and I found out also when I read this article on the Internet that he had been accused of raping young actresses and had killed himself while awaiting trial in 2011 in New York City. And so in that moment when I realized that this was the guy, um... His name was Joseph Brooks, and he wrote You Light Up My Life, that um, Oscar-winning song for which he won an Oscar, and he uh-huh. directed the film, which was less notable of the same name. And um, when I you know, saw his picture and read this article on the Internet about him, I knew that he was that – person from who had raped me, and um, I felt terrible that I hadn't reported it. I felt responsible for his victims, you know, that he apparently had gone on to do this for almost 40 years without being brought to justice, and never was, in fact, because he killed himself um, <clears throat> the day, I think it was the day before he was supposed to go to trial. Anyway, so... Um, I felt terrible for the women, I wanted to reach out to them, and so I began this journey of trying to heal myself, realizing that I had, that most of my life as an actress had been impacted by this, because every time I went to an audition, even though I thought I was fine, I would be, uh, have this you know, panic attack and be terrified, so finally I was starting to work on it, finding out who he was, I stopped blaming myself, I filed a lawsuit, um, with some help from my friends in Michigan, because that's where it had happened. And I began this journey to healing. And one of the things that I did was write a, the scene of what had happened just as a way to get it out of myself.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: And in, I think it was 2015, my daughter, not 16, something like that. Anyway, my daughter had, uh, directed, written, and produced, along with me, a web series that was winning awards at festivals. And as I was in touch with these different festivals, I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to submit this little short script here, you know, that I wrote about the rape and see what happens to the Amsterdam International Film Festival. It's the only place I submitted it, and it won second place unbeknownst to me the first thing I'd ever written and my daughter the filmmaker said we've got to make this mom you know and so we did and she plays me and um, I like to think of it as one of the final steps of my own healing because as I saw her go through the uh, manipulation that occurred in that room to me in 1971 I finally understood that I wasn't to blame and that this is something this guy did and did and did throughout his life. And uh, I got off my own case, and I began to heal and speak out. And the lawsuit was a big part of it. We eventually settled just because I kind of ran out of steam, and the healing actually occurred through making the movie. So I'm traveling around with it now to festivals and just trying to show people how this can happen to an unwitting innocent person, which I was. So I'm trying to humanize, you know, the victim's struggle. And then what happened, actually, after we made the movie is I got cast in the lead in a film. I won some awards for my work, including the best actor at the Best Actors Film Festival in San Francisco. And uh, I got my career back my, and my voice. So my story is one of healing and the power of speaking out. Wow so, to transform one's own life.
0: So basically, yeah. through this process, you reinvented yourself because you felt healed and got your yes. creative juices flowing again for what even though you acted in many different things, how much this one incident hurt your life in so many ways and you always thought you exactly. were the, you were the one to blame and right. it's, it's just terrible what happened? And this short film, does it only go into this scene or does it go into other women that were involved that this man had terrorized?
3: No, it just it, it is the scene of what happened to me and there are cards at the end of the movie that talk about um how I found out who he was and, and um my trajectory and then others. But I I didn't get into the specifics of the other victims because I, um, with the exception of one woman, I actually, maybe two, know their names and have been in touch with one of them. You know, there's a cloak of confidentiality that goes over any kind of sexual abuse cases. And unless the victims want their names out there, they're not out there. So I was very thwarted early on trying to reach out to his specific victims and then right after I was making that effort, the Cosby women came forward and then the
0: oh, yeah. kind of
3: tsunami of, you know, revelations that, that this is something endemic in our society. It's not just my experience, you know, or those or Brooks's victims. It's so many and women. So many holidays. So many, many, places, in Hollywood, so many for professions.
0: Sure. And yeah, and then well, coming older, out now, yeah, exactly. In either yeah. from sex from sexual harassment in this business to rape, as you, you talked about, Bill Cosby, and as also the person who raped you. So, thinking about specifically enough, yes. this these film festivals are coming up. Sin Quest Film uh-huh. Festival is getting February 27th today till March 11th, and then you go, you have uh, the, it's in the Sedona International Film Festival and Simone uh, Sonoma international film festival. So you have a lot of different places that submitted in different times. I think it's yes. just perfect timing because of what's come out in the last six months. I mean, just, about, I know. Hollywood. It, yeah.
3: It's just amazing because, um, who knew, you know, I had no idea I was just on a quest to heal myself basically and um, one of the lawyers actually that I had talked to who didn't take my case said that I was in a unique position to help change society because when I was not um, successful with my acting career, I, I was a casting director so for independent films. And I therefore sat on the other side of the desk and could speak with some authority that this is not normal, this is not what happens in a, a legitimate audition. Um, however, there is a lot of it that has now come to light that's going on. I think I read a study, 94% of the women in Hollywood have experienced some sort of sexual harassment oh my gosh. Uh, You know, on the spectrum to 94%. And uh, maybe it's not that high in other professions. We don't know. I don't have the figures about that. But I do know that that society, as whole is greatly impacted by women, not women and men victims, not being able to fully contribute from, you know, the fullness of their self, of themselves to society. You know, my, my case being, you know, one where I just, I think probably the best thing I, I do is act. And I was stopping myself, you know, out of uh, fear and, and shame and self-loathing. So, Some of that applies to every victim. You know, they hold themselves back. They don't go forward in the way that they should. And I think society only has to gain by all of this coming to light and hopefully ending soon, you know.
0: Exactly, or the business anyway. has to completely change, yeah. and then you have to look at the research that's happening with sexual harassment cases and different things and yeah. other professions, and I'm sure it's happening as well in those. So it's a society change, but Hollywood can make change. And if Hollywood yeah. speaks up enough, especially with all the leading ladies out there that are very powerful in this business to say this needs to stop, then the people that are taking advantage of these situations can uh, be stopped because once they yes. know that their career is going to be ruined, as we we're seeing countless people coming out in the media in the last six to eight months, uh, it's it's good news, Pamela. It's good news that things are changing.
3: Yes, I know. It's just incredible. I mean, it, you know, when I was making the film with my daughter, it was like a kind of very courageous, singular thing to be doing you know, just for ourselves, we had no idea that we were going to be part of this big wave of societal change. It's totally wonderful. You know, I mean, it's bittersweet because one doesn't want to ever hear a story about this happening to anyone, but if it did happen, time to get it, bring it to the light.
0: All right, Pamela. So let us know again, the three film festivals that it's available to screen it at right now. And also at one point it's going to come out available on VOD and stuff, right? After all the film festivals, right? For people to see? Yes. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yes, we have a distributor. In fact, the uh, company that's distributing the Oscar-nominated short films wants also to take ours out. So um, that'll be great. But it is going to be in uh, Sedona tomorrow, actually, the 28th and uh, March 3rd. And then in the Cinequest Festival in San Jose and Redwood City. I think it's also this coming up week. And then uh, the Sonoma Film Festival in Northern California will be March twenty fourth, I believe, through the twenty fifth. And then it's at the Richmond, Virginia Film Festival and the Beverly Hills in April. So
0: And your website so is the yeah, and then you can also check it out, the website, yes. the the first of many Yes, dot net. W- yeah.
3: yes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it'll it, people will be able to see it and and I hope that they'll watch it forgetting what the end is because it's so much more powerful when you don't know what happens. You just see it, you go along with it. But you know we have to talk about it now. so we uh, reveal the end
0: at this point, especially when you have opportunities for rewards and stuff that people need to go check it out because it's gonna it's gonna come out. And once it goes out to VOD, who knows where it's gonna go, but you're making a change, Pamela. And uh, are you on are you doing any other acting projects right now as well? to update your fans and listeners uh, what's going on with you you talked about Nicholas and uh, the next uh, one of the episodes coming up for him what about you how are things going other acting wise
3: well I have a sh- another short film that's actually playing in Sedona called charity it's a 27 minute film short film about um, bullying anti-bullying oh, okay and I play the mother of the main bully um, and I'm, so I'm kind of the main bad guy which is really fun to play. And, uh, yeah, it's trying to, well, they want to um, distribute this in schools, and, you know, who knows, it's also playing the festival circuit. So I'm very blessed to be able to go to Sedona and be both the actress, the writer, and co-director of uh, my short. So
0: awesome, I'm doing Pamela. double duty there. Well, yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on, Pamela. Best of luck with those films, and you're welcome to come back when you have other projects. So thanks for calling. Oh, great. Thank you, Neil. Take care, Pamela. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back. The Neil Haley show on the Author's Corner segment. And I tell you what, when we're talking about this, is one of the biggest topics in the world, but I'm excited to welcome the program. New York Times bestselling author, journalist, Howard Bloom, author of In the Enemy's House. Howard, thanks for calling, and I'm sure your phone is ringing off the hook because of what's happening now. Talking about Russian spies and the election, still, you're probably getting you're getting. It's like you're you can't stop talking about it with different people, right? You're right
4: the timing is propitious. You know, I, I set out to write a. Really a Cold War spy story uh, about a secret program we had at a place called Arlington Hall, a former girls' finishing school, uh, where we were reading the Russian's codes. and suddenly I'm caught up in a spy drama that's happening today that we're all caught up in. and I've been doing reporting on that for Vanity Fair. so I was writing really these two stories simultaneously, and one informed the other, and I had to come to the conclusion that the past is never past. By 1950s, spy drama is influencing what was happening today.
0: So, Howard, how is it? What's happening today? I mean, remember the 50s? I mean, again, I'm a, I have an undergrad in history, and we all know specifically the spying that was going on, and they were infiltrating our country, and all this. What is leading to Russians doing spying again? I, I'm sure we already know it's probably Putin, right? And so you, we're this is this is the process that we're going back to the days of the Soviet Union, right? In in certain aspects.
4: The Russian intelligence service has never stopped seeing the United States as the enemy. We were caught unprepared, unawares in the 1950s when they stole our atomic secrets. We're caught unawares today when they try to play fast and loose with our elections. What's making it so problematic and, and so disturbing today is... We don't seem to have a unified response. The president is, is sort of shrugging this off. He's not admitting that we were attacked. At least back in the 50s, the heroes of my book, Lamphere and Gardner, the FBI agent and the co-breaker, uh, went forward to try to track down the Russian spies and were able to lead a detective hunt all the way uh, to the Rosenbergs to get the guilty people. Today, there just seems to be apathy. Even when Congress passes Sanctions against Russia. The Trump administration is reluctant, for some reason, to enforce them.
0: And and so you're saying that somehow the Trump administration doesn't really want to enforce this. And what do you think the reasoning? Why well, the, probably yeah. Go ahead. It's
4: clear that they don't want to enforce them. They have not enforced them. And why they're doing it? That, that's the uh, the big question. For some reason, uh, as the president said, he's talked to Putin, and Putin told him uh, there wasn't intervention in the last election. He's I believe him. Uh, at the same time, the special counsel is going step by step by step to build his case, and we'll see how far he gets. Uh, if now, now maybe it's, it's Robert Mueller who's acting like the heroes of my book, uh, Meredith Gardner and Bob Lamphere, as he builds his case. Uh, you know, it's 70 years later, but there's, it's still another detective story trying to track down what the Russians have done to subvert America.
0: Absolutely. And so, Howard, predictions really quickly, and then we can figure out how we're going to purchase your books. I know you're you're just banging out interviews left and right. Uh, tell us uh, what you think is going to happen with this whole investigation. Do you think that the Trump administration is going to be in a lot of trouble, or do you think it's still not enough, not enough evidence? Well, let me tell you a,
4: a small story. When I was a New York Times reporter, I wrote about the John Gotti case. And why that's relevant is that Mueller— with the Justice Department official in charge of the organized crime prosecution of John Gotti. Bowler made a deal back then with Sammy the Bull, who had killed 12 people. He gave Sammy the bull, bull a deal that gave Sammy immunity after 12 murders. He's going to cut a lot of deals to try to get to the top of this. He's going to get Manfred, he's going to get Flynn, he's going to get Carter Page, he's going to get Papadopoulos, and then we're going to see what they have to say. I think the nation is in store for a, a rocky ride in the months ahead.
0: Oh, my gosh, Howard. This is just very uh, uh, tough for sure, and we'll see what happens and if, if the Trump administration will survive by the next time if he reruns for president, right, for, for reelection. Well, what?
4: let's see if he's around to run for president again. I mean, the real question is, uh, Trump has said he's drawing a line in the sand when they start looking at his financial dealings. Well. I can guarantee you uh, that Mueller is looking at those financial dealings. He's going to find out about loans through the Deutsche Bank, to the the Trump Organization, was that washing uh, Russian money or not. Uh, He's going to look at quid pro quos, and we'll see, the nation will see what he comes up with. And it's important uh, that he come up with this, that we get the facts. You know, in the 1950s, when the Cold War slaster I write about, all these cries about witch hunts, we had all the... Convertible evidence, these codes that have been broken. We had an arsenal of smoking guns that we could have cleared the air. Uh, let's hope Mueller uh, provides the evidence because, you know, witches don't exist, but facts do. And the way you put an end to a witch hunt is by driving a, a stake of facts into the heart of the matter. And uh, let's hope the facts get out there.
0: All right, so your book's are av- available in all finer bookstores. Any place we can find information on you, Howard, where's the best place we can connect? With you.
4: Well, I have a website, The books at Amazon, independent bookstores. It's uh, selling well all across America. It's been out just about five days, and it's, uh, it's very gratifying the reception it's getting.
0: All right, Howard, thanks for calling. Best of luck, and uh, best of luck with the book and all your other ventures. Take care.
4: Thank you. Good to speak
0: with you. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment.